0: Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast. Episode 27. I am Adam, coming to you from Austin, Texas. And on this episode, we'll be taking a look at It's Alive, an amazing horror film from 1974, written and directed by the great Larry Cohn. It's Alive is part of a trilogy, but we will be taking a look at the first installment of that trilogy. (laughs) I've also been joined in studio by my pug, Ellie. Good morning. Hello, sweetheart. Larry Cohen wrote and directed the It's Alive trilogy, consisting of It's Alive from 1974, It Lives Again from 1978, and It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive from 1987. He is also the creator of the television show Branded, as referenced in the Big Lebowski And Branded is created by fictitious writer Arthur Digby Sellers, who is essentially Larry Cohen, who wrote the, quote, bulk of the series, 156 episodes to be exact, though in reality there are only 48 episodes of the show Branded. And no, the Cohen brothers and Larry Cohen are not related. There's a spelling difference. Larry Cohen, known for directing such films as 1985's The Stuff. Big fan of The Stuff. 1990's Ambulance, starring Eric Roberts and James Earl Jones. Teaming back up again from, if you've seen the film Best of the Best, they were both in that. Um, James Earl Jones plays Eric Roberts' Taekwondo coach. <laughs> uh, that's great. Also, 1982's Cue the Winged Serpent. 1982, very good year for films. 1987's Return to Salem's Lots as well as 1973's Black Caesar, starring Fred Williamson, who was featured in the episode where I talk about the film VFW. Larry Cohen, as well, he wrote the Maniac Cop series, which I highly recommend if you're into 80s horror films. Maniac Cop is... Uh, Lovely series um, directed by William Lustig, who is a legend in his own right. So the two of them teaming up for the Maniac Cop series is quite a joy. Yes, Larry Cohen, legend, great man. So... The year is 1974, the year that brought us the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, the good one, Death Wish, starring Charles Bronson, you know, the the good Death Wish, and The Conversation, which I'm a big fan of, starring Gene Hagman, very big fan of The Conversation, so it's Um, 1974, that's also the year of Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, if you're a Godzilla fan. Phantom of the Paradise, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, was also 1974, and so was John Waters' Female Trouble, and The Godfather II, Francis Ford Coppola, and also Black Christmas, you know, the good one? That was also 1972, or 1974, rather, pardon me. Yes, Black Christmas argued as possibly the first real slasher film, and that was just four years before the release of John Carpenter's Halloween. What say you, listener? What do you think? What's what's really the true slasher film, Black Christmas or Halloween? I mean, I would argue, I'd argue Halloween just because a slasher film indicates that there is a slasher, an actual villain, and Black Christmas has a villain, but you only see them briefly, very, very briefly, and, and also there's no chase scene, I think, I don't know, I'm just, uh, just spitballing, but I, I feel like if you're going to have a slasher film, the slasher should engage in a chase scene with one or more of his victims and be defeated, or, or as, an, as an audience you're made to believe that they are defeated, at least uh, at the end. So I don't know, I don't know if I would consider Black Christmas a true slasher film. But Halloween checks all those boxes. Friday 13th checks all those boxes. The Prowler. Nightmare on Elm Street. All those. All those check the boxes. Anyways, enough about Black Christmas. (laughs) All right, so It's Alive from 1974. Starring John P. Ryan. He's also in the it's um the sequel it's alive I'm sorry it lives again <laughs> very awkwardly titled films in this trilogy because it's alive okay that's easy to remember it lives again I don't know it's it's like just say it's alive too um <laughs> John P. Ryan is also um. He was also in uh, Best of the Best. He had a small role in Best of the Best that was, um, of course, starring Eric Roberts and James Earl Jones. Circled it right back around for you. John P. Ryan is also in Possibly My Favorite... Let me see. Is that actually true? Possibly My Favorite Television Show of the 80s which is not Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's not um, technically Star Trek The Next Generation. It's not Thundercat. It's, it's nothing like that. My fa- I think my favorite film of the 19... Oh, film, rather. My favorite television show from the 1980s was Miami Vice. So, I mean, I watched Miami Vice as a child... So I would watch Miami Vice and then I would also watch like cartoons and kid shit, but I was also watching horror movies. So I feel like horror films were sort of the bridge between cartoons and then like serious stuff like Miami Vice. I don't know. In my mind, I kind of see that, you know, Uh, but John P. Ryan was uh, on an episode from uh, 1989, so kind of late in late in the Miami vice series. Uh, He's in an episode called the cell within. And he's the character of Jake Manning. (laughs) Of course you remember that. Of course you remember John P. Ryan in Miami vice, some random episode from 1989, of course, but I probably remember him best from the film Three O'Clock High. If you haven't seen Three O'Clock High, it's a very... Just the way it's made, they don't make movies like that. And it's a very simple thing. It's a very simple... Like, the plot is very simple. It's like, okay, there's this upstanding kind of nerdy, goody-two-shoes, bookworm dude. Not over-the-top... You know, bookworm, like 80s, like like Revenge of the Nerds looking, like, glasses with the, the middle taped and, like, a pocket protector. No, like, not that level, but a dude who's, uh, you know, he's a schoolboy. You know what I mean? He's not exactly a, a, a nerd or anything, but he's kind of an awkward schoolboy. He is tasked by... Uh, he is tasked to welcome a new student to campus and the new student has been basically kicked out of every school district in the area and, <laughs> and instead of just like completely expelling him from from school in general or putting him in fucking jail <laughs> they just keep transferring him like a catholic priest they he they just he, he keeps breaking the rules and then they just have to keep transferring. him. So anyways, the guy who they transfer is like this gnarly fucking psycho named uh, Buddy Ravel. And uh he's the Buddy Ravel's he's the bad guy from kindergarten cop. It's that guy. <laughs> and he comes to this high school and uh uh the the our protagonist is supposed to welcome him to the school and shit. But he makes the fatal mistake of, like, gently touching Buddy Ravel on the shoulder. Not in a creepy way, but just sort of as, just sort of in a friendly type of way. And Buddy Ravel doesn't like to be fucking touched. So he picks up our uh, main character, his name's Jerry. He picks up Jerry and he just slams him into a fucking bathroom mirror really hard. And then tells him, "Uh, you fucked up, you fucking touched me, I don't like being touched. Now you and I are going to have a fight after school you would think that somebody who doesn't like being touched wouldn't like fighting because that involves touching a lot of touching and fighting. I've noticed. I mean, I'm not a, I am not a, uh, a black belt or a uh, professional MMA fighter, but I do watch uh, those sports and there's a lot of touching involved. So, but anyways, um, the whole thing is the whole movie. Our character, Jerry is shitting his pants Because he's got to fight this guy after school and he can't get out of it. There's no way to escape it. Uh, His friends are like taking bets on it. It's fucked up. And then after school, he's got to confront the bully and fight him. (laughs) Sounds silly. It sounds like something from like Pete and Pete or like some teen drama or some shit. But it's actually a fucking awesome movie and I definitely recommend it. Watch 3 O'Clock High. Uh, uh, John P. Ryan actually gets, uh, he actually ends up getting knocked out in the movie because he tries to break up the fight. Anyways, that's not important. <laughs> anyway, let's move past three o'clock. Uh, we're, um so John P. Ryan, uh, plays the character of Frank Davis, him and his wife, Lenore Davis. Well, she's going into labor. They're having a baby and it's the middle of the night and Lenore goes into labor and they have a 11 year old son named Chris. So they go and drop him off at a friend's house, their friend, Frank's friend, Charlie. And then they head to the hospital. So Lenore is in the delivery room as Frank waits with the other fathers to be in the waiting room. And this discussion takes place of, how can anyone bring a child into this world? And Which, I mean, it seems like we're constantly always saying that, right? Like, how can anybody bring a child into this world? That's like every fucking generation. That's every year ever. <laughs> how can we bring a, a child into this sick world? So that's the conversation that these fathers are having in the waiting room and they talk about uh, you know this world we live in there's chemicals in our food and there's smog in the air and even in the most pristine homes in Beverly Hills are infested with roaches and snails explains one father who's a pest exterminator and the expecting dad the exterminator explains that even the strongest poison won't kill all roaches. In fact, it will breed a stronger, harder-to-kill roach. Frank leaves the room to take a stroll through the hospital when a nurse from the delivery staff falls through a door at the end of the hall and hits the floor, and he's covered in blood and lacerations, possibly dead, and Frank sees us and rushes, to the nurse's aid and Frank realizes, Oh no, this, this person was came from the delivery room. That's where my wife is. And Frank rushes to the delivery room and Lenore is there still strapped in the stirrups arm strapped to the table of the, um, in the delivery room and the entire delivery room staff, nurses, doctors, everyone are dead on the floor and there's, Blood sprayed all over the room. And the baby's missing. And the umbilical cord seems to have been chewed off. Not surgically cut off, but chewed off. Baby's missing. Everyone in the delivery room is dead. Except Lenore. She's still alive. And she's screaming. She's screaming her head off. And a trail of blood leads through to a small skylight. Okay? So, room full of dead bodies... No real witnesses, because Lenore didn't really see much, and baby's gone. So police arrive, and then we're introduced to um, Lieutenant Perkins, who's the main investigator on this case. And I'm just going to call him uh, Lieutenant Donald Trump, because he looks like 1970s Donald Trump, if you've ever seen like old pictures of of, uh, the former... Uh, president of the United States, the 45th president. Yeah, so I'm just going to call Lieutenant Perkins Donald Trump for now on. Okay. And and the uh, head doctor man who looks like uh, Bill Ingvall from the uh, Blue Collar Comedy Tour. He looks like a, I don't know what Bill Ingvall looks like now. I assume he's still alive. But I would imagine he looks bloated so this—that's what the head doctor of this hospital looks like. So I'm just gonna, and the two of them are gonna pop up in a whole bunch of scenes later. So, anytime you hear me say Donald Trump, I'm talking about Lieutenant Perkins, the the main uh, the head of this investigation of this uh, missing baby. And uh, if I ever talk about the doctor man guy, um, I'm talking. I'll, I'll just say Bill Fall. So. The, So Donald Trump and Bill Ingvall, they tell tell Mr. Uh, Frank Davis that the infant murdered everyone in the delivery room, chewed off its own umbilical cord, and then escaped the hospital. So now this thing is roaming around in the town and could potentially kill more people. So this baby who was born essentially a vicious monster immediately from birth, s- kills people. Didn't kill his mother though, left her alive, but killed everybody else and was able to escape. So, um, <laughs> so Donald Trump and Bill Lingvall explained this to him. And they explained that, look, you this baby needs to be destroyed like an animal. Needs to get put down. So we're going to go after this thing and we have no intention on taking it alive. And Frank is, uh, he's fine with this. He's already, he stays remarkably calm and reserved and strong throughout the movie, which helps immensely. So when some actual really heavy emotional things take place, he could. Could uh, he can emote then? So he's he's not hysterical. All the hysterics are left to Lenore, and she does a great job. Like that's that that role was well done. She basically quickly kind of loses her mind and is hysterical through most of the movie. So Frank has to be strong for her, while he's trying to like wrap his head around this this whole insane situation so a bunch of things take place um from there frank who he gets fired from his pu- public relations job there's a whole scene where he's he's brought into his uh, boss's office and he's it's like he's fired but not in like a hey you're fucking fired it's more of like Hey Frank, why don't you know you have some accumulated vacation time? Why don't you go take that now? And Frank is like, "You know, I know all the like with everything that's going on, I'd rather just kind of keep working to kind of keep my mind distracted. I really and I have all these important accounts and all these things that I really should be tending to, and I would rather just keep working and his boss is like, "Well, I'm not asking you. you need to take your vacation now." And then as soon as Frank leaves, he calls in his secretary he says, Pack up all the shit in his desk and send it to his fucking house. So he's fired. And the whole thing is that it's explained to him that, like, look, as a PR firm, it's bad PR to have your uh your your, your PR guy being wrapped up in a public news story where his newborn baby is a monster who's killing people and is on the loose. Not a good look for the company. So, and the movie does that. The movie is very, very good. There's like a theme of like, you see both sides of the story. Like there's people who want to kill the Davis's baby and then there's those who do not, and even when Frank gets fired, like, you understand why his boss needs to fire him, and his boss kind of comes off like a douche, but if, from his perspective, it firing Frank is probably a good idea, it's probably good, it's, it's good PR, <laughs> you know, he, you can't have somebody with that much controversy just working for your company, so I You know, but at the same time, like you feel for Frank, you're like, well, that's fucked up. So then we jump to Frank picks up Lenore from the hospital and has their son, Chris, stay at a friend's house, uh, their friend, Charlie. Right. And they decide just to keep Chris out of school, just stay at Charlie's house. You know, they don't even let him come home. They're like, don't come home. Don't go to school. Just stay at Charlie's house until the shit blows over because, Frank knows that the media is going to go after his family. He's going to go after Lenore. It's going to go after Chris. It's going to go after him. So he's trying to keep everyone as isolated as possible. Also, you know, in terms of story, it wouldn't make sense to have Chris just walking around the house anyways. Um, until he needs to be there, basically. So they send their son away. Also, it kind of it's this thing where, again, you 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 see like Frank has a uh, a, a hysterical wife who just went through a really traumatic experience, and he's trying to shelter his wife. He's trying to shelter Chris from seeing his mother in such a state, and he's trying to shelter Chris from knowing what's going on. So he basically doesn't tell Chris anything. Chris knows that he has like you know a sibling on the way. But he doesn't know when you know he doesn't know what the if it's a boy or a girl or it was if it was born at all like he doesn't know he's like he's he's kept in the dark, which is fucked up, but you also see Frank's side of it where it's like he's trying to put out as many fires and contain the situation as much as he possibly can because a lot of this is out of his hands, you know he has police who are, you know, in in cahoots with the fucking hospital to go after this baby and kill it. And, you know, if, even if they kill it or capture it alive, it's like they're going to, the Davises aren't going to get it back. They're going to study it because it's a fucking monster. <laughs> you don't just hand monsters back to people. So, and Frank, oh, here's another thing. So Frank is taking Lenore back home and they have this conversation in the car where he's like, Oh, uh, you know, I had a lot of vacation time racked up in work and, um, I'm going to just take that time to be with you. And Lenore's like, Oh, well I thought you had a lot of important accounts at work that you're working on. And he's like, Oh no, you're more important. So he doesn't even tell Lenore he got fired. He's just is, which is kind of fucked up. You should tell your wife if he got fucking fired, but at the same time, like she's in a very delicate state and he doesn't want to like, pile on any stress on her. So the writing in this is for a fucking baby monster, baby movie is pretty fucking smart, actually. So meanwhile, the baby's still out there racking up a body count. He's <laughs> the baby's out there and let's see. Uh, so the baby's out there and, um, racks up a few kills and, and Frank gets visited by Bill Ingeball and uh, Donald Trump, and they get Frank to sign off the custody for the uh, baby, the baby monster, which Frank is totally fine with signing. He doesn't. He doesn't feel like the baby is his. He feels like it's an abomination. He's embarrassed. He's traumatized, and he sees like these people are willing to go hunt this thing down and get rid of it. And the sooner that happens, then we can move on with the rest of our lives. So Frank just signs off on it. He signs his baby's death warrant. Basically the only like explanation and you can miss it if you. So there's this scene where the doctor from the company that I guess created the birth control pill that Lenore was taking before she got pregnant. And Bill Ingvall, they're walking down this hallway and they're basically saying that, okay, the birth control pills that she was taking were untested and pushed out into the market without proper research and safety protocols. So, and she's been taking these pills for a while and... So they kind of plant it in your mind, like, well, if Lenore's taking them, then there has to be other women out there who are also taking this specific uh, birth control pill. And what they suggest is that that particular drug caused Lenore to have a monster baby. And if word got out that that, that particular birth control pill cause this type of side effect of giving birth to a monster baby, it would look really bad for the pharmaceutical company. And so there's, there's all kinds of corruption. There's like, you know, this, this movie really takes, takes jabs at things like that. Things like the, you know, birth control and the responsibility of, well women and the responsibility of doctors and pharmaceutical companies and like what does it mean to be a parent what does it mean like thing you know things like abortion things like thing all those sort of underlying things are woven into this story but they don't just throw it in your face okay they they it's subtle enough where wherever you stand on certain issues it stays very neutral so anybody on either side of a particular issue could like watch this movie and not feel like the filmmaker is making a jab at any one person's particular beliefs as when it comes to things like parenting and uh, birth control abortions, things like that. So again, the, the writing in this movie is very well done, but Yeah, so the the birth control pills may or may not have caused this to happen, but it, it, the movie suggests that that is in fact what hap- uh what the um what has happened. So it's not like just so they can dispel the idea of like, oh, well maybe maybe Lenore got impregnated by an alien or, <laughs> or some kind of entity or something. It's like, no, it's they bring everything right back down to earth. And like, this is an earthly problem. This isn't, uh, this isn't some, uh, straight up sci-fi idea, even though it is technically a sci-fi thing, but you know, it's, but, but they, they, for a rubber monster baby movie, everyone in this movie plays everything very, very straight. like, And that really sells the believability of this movie. So um, the monster baby breaks into Chris's school in the middle of the night. So there's nobody there, but the police are somehow alerted that the monster baby is in the school. Even though like Chris hasn't even been to school. So like his parents like basically took him out of school but somehow the baby knows that this is Chris's school. Could be a coincidence. You know, cops are like, we got the baby cornered, and Frank goes along with the police. And when they get there, Frank is like, yeah, this is like... Like, my, my son goes to school at the school. and You know, and... So they set that up. It's not like... they. I mean, it's not explicitly stated but it's it's suggested that like the baby somehow knew this was Chris's school somehow so so the cops like roll into the school they come in hot and uh, the baby escapes just a hail of bullets from the police and again vanishes into the night so the the manhunt continues uh, later. The baby monster heads to Frank and Lenore's house. It just knows where they live. It's like there's some sort of instinct, there's some sort of beacon that connects Frank and Lenore to this monster baby. They the baby knows where its family is and is trying to find its family. It's like some penguin don't penguins do that? When penguins are there's like there's like fucking hundreds of thousands of them just standing on a frozen beachfront somewhere they they can just they can hear they they know each other's little their their voice they can hear their their mommy's voice their child's voice in in a crowd of thousands and thousands of other penguins that's like what the monster baby has has like some sort of heightened instinct um so once the baby actually makes it to frank and lenore's house it does this like Goldilocks and three bears move where it like eats out of the fridge and then it goes into Chris's room and like kind of like messed up the room. Like it was playing and Frank is walking around in the middle of the night and he noticed, he knows something is up. He knows someone, someone's been eating my food and someone's been sleeping in my bed (laughs) and but so, but, but Frank suspects something. He's like, okay, um, So now he's on high alert and Lenore finds the baby first, right? She finds the monster baby first and knows that it's her and Frank's. There's like this maternal instinct. Also, how many monster babies are really running around? She knows it's hers and it's in her house and she embraces it and takes it into the basement basically hides it from Frank while Frank is like roaming around the rest of the house. And at some point, Chris senses that something is wrong at home. So he leaves Charlie's house and just runs home. So he just runs out of the house and is just running through the night straight to his house. And once he gets home, he he like he basically sneaks into the house. He doesn't like ring the doorbell or anything like that. And he doesn't have keys, so he basically sneaks in through the basement where the monster baby is, but he doesn't know that. So Chris uh, goes in the basement and he sees the monster baby and he doesn't panic. He basically starts talking to it. He's he's like whispering to it like it's okay. I'll take care of you. You're going to be safe. Like don't, like don't be scared. And it's almost like Chris sensed that it was like maybe his his sibling. It was his baby brother. And monster baby doesn't attack Chris, you know, but meanwhile <laughs> Frank is now heading down to the basement. And he's got a gun. And he confronts the baby and shoots it. <laughs> Which looked really funny because it was a rubber monster baby. And I think they only had like one rubber monster baby prop. So when he shoots it, you can tell it's like it's like in the dark. You can tell when he goes bang, you can tell that there was probably somebody there's probably someone off camera who just had like a fishing line tied around the foot of the baby and just like yanks it as if it was like struck by a bullet. It's very funny. But again, the movie plays it completely straight. And so Frank shoots it and wounds it. It's not dead. It's wounded. And the baby goes to make an escape. But when Chris left Charlie's house, Charlie was not far behind, so he's, now he's running to Franklin and Lenore's house, and when he gets to the house, he heads for the basement entrance, and when Charlie shows up, um, the baby is in the process of escaping the basement, and runs into Charlie on the stairs, and the baby's like, Hey, I don't fucking know you, and then just kills Charlie. It just bites out his throat and leaves him dead on the back steps of their house. So it's so now it's a nightmare. Now the thing's wounded. It's scared. It fucking killed poor Charlie. <laughs> um. <clears throat> so then after that, uh, Bill Ingvall and Donald Trump show up with uh, an army of fucking cops and the manhunt is underway now. Like they're fucking hot on the monster baby's fucking heels and they're chasing this fucking thing down. And so then the cops corner the baby in like a tunnel in the LA river and everybody knows the LA river. So when I actually, you know, when I saw the LA river, I was like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> it's that one place that's in every movie. Everyone knows the LA river. It's the, the, if you remember the the chase scene in Terminator 2 Judgment Day where the T1000 is driving like like a big rig and like a like an 18 wheeler like truck and uh, the terminator and John Connor are on a motorcycle and shit They're like yeah that that thing that kind of looks like a uh looks like a canal, like an emptied out cement canal. That's the L.A. River. The L.A. River's not a river, by the way. It's, 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 they just call it a river, but it's not really a river. Uh, what else? Uh, To Live and Die in L.A. Another cool as fuck movie. That's, uh, there's a scene shot there. It's in the, uh, the drag racing scene in Greece. (laughs) I think everyone has probably seen Greece. Remember the... The drag racing scene. Yeah, that's, that's, that's in the LA river. Uh, it's also in repo man. That's, uh, I have also, have an episode about the brilliance of the film repo man. It's one of my favorite movies. It's also in the movie drive. I think, um, you know, drives a cool movie, but yeah, it's in the movie drive. It's in the movie alligator. (laughs) If you've ever seen the, uh, you know, it was that era of like animals killing people. And alligator, uh, is also featured in, um, well, the LA River, rather, is featured in the film Alligator. So, anyways, they, they got the monster baby cornered in the LA River, uh, in this like tunnel. Uh, it actually kind of looks like the end of, uh, the, the Friday the 13th, the Jason Tanks Manhattan one, where, uh, They're in the sewer of New York and they have to make sure they get out by midnight because New York floods the tunnels, the sewer system of New York with toxic uh, raw sewage that is also heavily corrosive for some reason. It looks, it looks like that. That's what this, that's what the set looks like. Uh, What was it? Billing and Donald Trump. They were like, like he was basically like, look, I want to come with you on this manhunt. Okay, like I feel responsible. I feel like I should be the one to kill this fucking thing. And Bill Ball, and Donald Trump are like, okay, well, if you're coming with us, then we're going to issue you a rifle so that you have something to defend yourself with, which is, isn't that weird? <laughs> the police are like, yeah, come with us. Come do a ride along with us. We're going to give you a gun. You're like, but, uh, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, Frank... Of course, uh, once they get to the L.A. River, and he's going through these tunnels, he kind of breaks away from the rest of the police and he's going through these tunnels, and he finds the baby first. Like, he hears the baby crying, and he finds it first. And he realizes, there's a scene where he's actually, this is actually really the first time he's seen the baby, like, got a good look at it. And he sees the baby, and he begins to realize the baby's humanity and realizes that yes it's a monster but it's also a baby and it's genetically connected to him so this sort of like paternal instinct takes over him and he realizes that he can't kill it he can't do it so he ends up taking the the, the uh monster baby in his arms And comforting it because the baby's kind of like crying and freaking out, and he's he's like calming it down, and he like wraps it in a wraps it in a blanket, and he has a change of heart basically, and he brings the child out of the tunnel, and the cops want it dead. He's basically like, look, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's wounded. I got, I, I got the thing. You can take it, but don't kill it. Like, do whatever you need to do to study it or whatever, which is kind of fucked up. <laughs> it's like, who knows what these fucking people are going to do with these things, what kind of men-behind-the-sun-level fucking experiments are going to do on this fucking monster baby. But he's basically like, just don't kill it, you know. You can take it and study it or whatever, but, like, don't, please don't kill it. But the cops ain't hearing that shit. They're basically like, if you don't put the baby down, we'll shoot you and the baby. So it's like, give us the fucking baby so we can kill it. Or we're going to fucking shoot you both down right now. Fucking Bill Ingvall comes up and is like, Frank, give us the baby. Okay, like, the thing is fucking dangerous. We're here to protect you. Yada, yada, yada. Give us the baby. (laughs) And with no other choice... Frank throws the monster baby at Bill Ingvall's face and the baby latches onto his head and just kills Bill (laughs) Ingvall. And then the police open fire. Bill Ingvall, I mean, presumably the baby killed Bill Ingvall. Um, I'm sure the hail of bullets probably assisted with that as well. But baby is killed billing ball is also killed baby dies and it's very traumatic at this point Lenore is also brought to the scene for some reason and uh and Frank's there so they had to watch they had to watch this um their child end up succumbing to being hunted down and killed like an animal so so after this uh Donald Trump is like, yo, um, I'll take you guys home. So he goes to take Franklin Lenore uh, home and he gets a call, which is pretty, that's pretty cool. Um, because you know, there wasn't really like, there wasn't smartphones, car phones were rare. And, um, (laughs) he gets a phone call in his cop car and he gets a call and it's like, hello, Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I understand. And when he hangs up, he just leans over to Frank and Lenore and is like, another one has been born in Seattle. And then you get a swell of dramatic music, fade to black, the end. And that was, it's alive and it leaves it on a, a real cliffhanger, and I haven't seen a real cliffhanger in a movie in a like in a very long time. TV shows, yeah, but like a real cliffhanger in a movie where you're just like, oh, "Fuck!" Now I got to watch the second one and find out what the hell happened. That's how it ends. Also, I want to point out that um, Bernard Herman. If you're a Alfred Hitchcock fan, Bernard Herman and Alfred Hitchcock worked together, and he composed the music for "It's Alive." And the music's great. It's, it really makes this low-budget film really have some, some, has some value. It adds value to it. And, and if it really ups the budget and everything and classes things up. But yeah, Bernard Herrmann um, worked on a whole bunch of Alfred Hitchcock stuff. You would definitely recognize uh, his work. That is the end of It's Alive. And It's Alive is part of a trilogy like I mentioned before, it would be followed up four years later with It Lives Again, and Not Till 1987 is uh, the third installment, It It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, starring Michael Moriarty, who... And Michael Moriarty was in The Stuff, directed by Larry Cohen, so... He was also in *Cue the winged servant, but he's great. He's weird. He's like this very odd kind of, he's a very interesting performer, but yeah, he does a really great job in part three. He really holds that fucking movie together. Um, and then the dude who plays chef from apocalypse now, he's, uh, he's like the star of the, the third one. <laughs> Or the second one, rather. He's in the he's in the second one, um, but yes. So, like I said before, this movie really kind of uses the structure of a low budget monster movie to really tackle some like some subjects that really. Um, that really affect people and people have strong opinions about, you know, it's not just people having to kill the monster because the monster is going to kill us. If we don't, you know, it's, it's actually a a little bit smarter than those types of movies, but I want to read a quote to you from Larry Cohen and, This is from the book, Larry Cohen, The Stuff of Gods and Monsters, by Michael Doylelt. It's alive is whatever you want it to be. Whatever feelings or beliefs or attitudes you have are merely reinforced when you see the film. So it works both ways. That is why I thought the picture was okay, because... If It's Alive had been staunchly pro-abortion or staunchly anti-abortion, it would have quickly turned off a large portion of the audience. As it was, it worked for everybody. The movie allows the audience to decide for themselves, and that's the way movies should be. Once you fall heavily on one side of an argument, everything becomes too literal. That's less interesting dramatically because the drama comes from the doubt and the debate. Those are the words of Larry Cohen. Well, I think I'm going to cut it off right there. I've been, um, I've been enjoying doing these shorter episodes that are more of a focused review on one specific movie. And I'll be doing more in the future. I'll be doing more my usual long-form episodes as well. And those episodes are more geared towards um, kind of an overall topic or topics and um, how that particular episode's uh, selected films fit into that topic. But I really enjoy doing the shorter reviews as well. So uh, stay tuned for more of these. I hope you like them. Well, uh, that's going to be it for me. If you need to get a hold of me, if you have any questions, if you have any movie suggestions, any kind of uh, films or film series, TV shows even, that I should take a look at, um, feel free to get a hold of me on On Instagram, at skeleton underscore factory. And this is Adam rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. I will catch you all on the next one. Bye, bye.